Hello, and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Manager here at LBYR, and I'm very happy to have here with me today Lakin Zaya Kemp, author of the forthcoming Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet. Her novel has already received a starred review from Kirkus, which raves, fans of Elizabeth Acevedo's With the Fire on High will cherish Xander and Penn's love story and Penn's passion for food. This stellar debut offers a cathartic take on a relationship between a father and daughter. Authentic flavor, inside and out. Lakin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. We're just going to jump right into the questions, and I'll start off with asking you a little bit about yourself as a writer. When did you start writing? Why do you write for young readers? So I was always a really strong writer in school, and I remember being praised for that by teachers and kind of only that because I wasn't good at math or science or or much else but writing was something that I really excelled at and I remember in elementary school I won an essay contest sponsored by the local university and that definitely built up my confidence a lot and I think kind of put it on my teachers and my parents radar that this was something that I had an interest in and that I was talented at And then I think I won a poetry contest in middle school. Once I got to high school, there was a single section of creative writing, and it was invitation only, and I was actually not invited. (laughs) It was really strange because they didn't even let me submit anything. Um, They just didn't let me take the course, and so that was really frustrating. But then during my senior year of high school, just on my own, I started writing my first novel. And in hindsight, it's pretty clear that I started writing that novel to deal with some really challenging things I was going through personally at the time. My father was battling cancer, and so the story was basically about us and our relationship, although it was set in Argentina in the 1970s during La Guerra Sucia. But from that moment on, writing just became the safe place for me to kind of put all of my pain and anger and confusion about the world and about his death. And I'm still unpacking that experience, which is why Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet also centers around the two main characters and their relationships with their fathers. So there's just a lot of me in everything that I write. And it started with that first novel and realizing how healing writing can be. But Because most, if not all, of the things that I'm trying to heal are from that time. Things that happened to me when I was a teenager. I think that's why I'm drawn to writing about young people who are grappling with the same kinds of things that I did and really still am grappling with. Those experiences are still very vivid in my memory, so it doesn't take much to tap into them. But beyond that, I love writing for teenagers for the same reason that I loved teaching them when I was in the classroom and an ESL teacher. I just think that they are so passionate and courageous, and I just admire them and the way they see and experience the world so much. Um, two things jumped out at me as you were as you were telling me about why you love writing and why you write. The first is that it seems like it's a therapeutic act for you. But also, when you said that you started writing your first novel when you were 17 years old, I feel like when people think of writing, first of all, they're a little bit intimidated by it. 
um, especially when you say you're writing a novel. And secondly, people always think that it's something that like adults do, you know, but writing is something I always feel should be and is accessible to anybody at any age. So I really like hearing you saying that you wrote your first novel or you started writing your first novel when you were 17. Yeah, I was kind of a self-righteous teenager. <laughs> you know, I mentioned before there were certain subjects in school which I knew were just like not my thing. But when it came to writing, I really did build a lot of confidence early on. And I read so much. I actually didn't start reading. So I, I read young adult books, I would say in middle school, and then I returned to them in college. But during high school, I read a lot of adult books. And I think, I don't know, I just, I pictured those writers as being really aspirational to me. And it was just always something that I, that I wanted to do. It just never felt off limits to me. I think in the same way that I was always allowed to read whatever I wanted to read, none of that was off limits. It just didn't feel like this impossible thing to try and so when I had an idea I just decided to go for it. Could you tell us a little bit or tell me a little bit about yourself as a reader? Uh, what books were formative for you when you were younger? What have you read recently do you think will stay with you 5, 10, 15 years from now? One of the most profoundly exciting moments of this entire publication process has been getting a blurb from my favorite author of all time, Melinda Marchetta. I was able to write her a letter, and the first line in that letter is, your books are my soulmates. And discovering her books when I was younger truly felt like that. On the Jellicoe Road is my favorite contemporary novel of all time, and her fantasy series, The Lumetier Chronicles, is my favorite fantasy series. Everything she writes is mind-blowingly beautiful and just feels so tailor-made for me. But the reason that I picked up one of her books in the first place is because when I saw her last name on the cover, you know, my 13-year-old self was like, oh my god, she's Latina. <laughs> she's not Latina, she's actually Italian. But many of her books explore discrimination faced by the Italian immigrant community in certain parts of Australia. And so the characters and the themes ended up still resonating with me really deeply. However, I think my initial reaction to seeing one of her books for the first time really illuminates how desperate I was at the time to find books written by Latinx authors, which is evident in how ecstatic I was when I thought I had finally found one. You know, representation matters has become this sort of catchphrase. And when I was still in the classroom, it was like this very abstract idea that all of my white colleagues could intellectually support and get behind. But then I would still have to work so hard to convince them that own voices stories are essential and that bad rep is worse than no representation at all because they just couldn't relate to the absolutely visceral experience of seeing yourself on the page written by someone who shares your identity. And I can't fully explain to them what happens in my heart and my mind 
and even in my body, when I recognize myself on the page, it is just such a divine and liberating experience that they will never know because representation for them is everywhere. Whiteness is the default. We are saturated in it on a daily basis. So when you ask which stories that I'm currently reading will stick with me for years to come, it's it's those stories that are still few and far between that allow me to see myself reflected back. It's Sia Martinez in The Moonlit Beginning of Everything. It's Don't Ask Me Where I'm From. It's Fat Chance Charlie Vega. Every book that's helping to give shape to this new Latinx literary canon, which I am so grateful exists, and also so grateful to be contributing to now with my own stories so that a reader out there might have that same experience of being validated and celebrated on the page. So how did Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet come to you? Did the characters come first, or did the story, or did they all come together at once? How was your writing process for your novel? The setting of the restaurant was actually the thing I conceptualized first. I really wanted to explore those dynamics of working in a restaurant and how people sort of form these found families in that kind of environment. And it all really stemmed from years of my partner telling me the most hilarious stories from when he worked in a restaurant in our hometown. And I was just so fascinated. They had all of these inside jokes and genius nicknames for each other that really just perfectly encapsulated each person's worst insecurities. They had these games and contests and rituals, and honestly, it was sort of like this entirely different language and culture that had been created purely out of boredom and out of the necessity to make the workday more bearable. So there are some characters in the book who are actually based on real people, and there are scenes in the book that were based on true events. So while the food elements in the book ended up taking on a much deeper meaning as I was writing, and it really came to symbolize so much for Penn and Xander, and also so much for me personally, it all started with the setting and falling in love with these characters who had one foot in the real world by way of these stories my partner was telling me about what it's like to work at a restaurant. Is that how your your stories usually come to you? Is it the setting that comes to you first and then you populate it with characters? Do you usually pull things from, from your own real life? I'd say it's a mix of all of that. The story that I'm working on right now, I think the characters came to me first. A story that I finished earlier in the fall, I think that one, some childhood memories were what inspired it. So it really just depends. I want to ask you about the difference between writing for young adults and writing for middle schoolers. Do you approach those differently? So I think all of my stories come from a really personal place. And I know a lot of writers don't like to admit this, but I'll go ahead and say that most of my protagonists are some version of me. And so so that's usually my starting point, is if I'm writing an adult, who was I at that age? What were things that I was struggling with? What were the things that I cared about? And then I just kind of put little seeds of those things, little bits and pieces of those different experiences into different characters. 
And then with middle grade, I do the same thing. I just have to time travel back a little further and think about who I was then and what I was getting up to, what my friend group was like. So the struggles probably look a little bit different. The sources of conflict look a little bit different. But I'm always just thinking about that girl that I was. Very specific to culture in place at that time of my life. And that's usually my starting point and how I, you know, get to the appropriate voice for that age group. Are you writing the books that you needed at those ages or the books that you wanted to see but didn't know you wanted to see at those ages? I definitely think so. The first time I wrote a picture book and I sent it to my agent, she, we decided not to take that one out on sub because it wasn't very good. (laughs) But she gave me some great advice, and she told me to basically zoom in on either a memory or an experience that I could pull from to write about. And I'm not sure why it never occurred to me to do that with Picture Book, I think because I was thinking more generally about appealing to a certain age group. But what I tend to do naturally when I'm writing is is right for that audience of one and that audience of one is usually just like my characters some version of me at a particular time in my life and I think by doing that it also allows me to hyper focus on the audience of readers that I hope that that finished book ends up finding. I am really intentional about writing stories about the Chicano community, about the Mexican-American and Mexican community, and that's kind of my lane, and that's where I feel comfortable, and that's who I try to honor the most in my stories. I think we're going to dive into that a little bit more in a question I'll have for you later, but now I want to ask you one of the questions I ask everybody, and it's one of my favorite questions because I like visualizing books on a bookshelf. So... If you could place somewhere between bitter and sweet on a shelf with three other books, what would they be and why? So you mentioned one at the top, which would be With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo. I would probably also place it alongside I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica Sanchez. And then maybe also North of Happy by Adi Al Saif. So those last two I mentioned were actually books that I comped when I participated in DB Pit and pitched the book when I was trying to find an agent. So those were the first two that came to mind for me. I don't think With the Fire on High had come out yet when I was still looking for an agent, Um, but since it's come out, I definitely think it would fit perfectly alongside all three of those books. Are there any books or even any other works of art that you think of as ancestors of Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet? Other works of art that influenced how you approached writing the story in terms of subject matter, style, tone, etc.? Style-wise, I definitely see similarities between Melina Marquetta's books and my own. I use a lot of fragments and anaphora and simultaneous actions, which I'm sure drive my copy editor nuts. (laughs) Um, But I think a lot of the stylistic choices that I make 
and a lot of the choices around rhythm come from reading and rereading her work so many times over the years. I also think there's a lot of imagery in the book inspired by the imagery in Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. There used to be recipes delineating the chapters in Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, like in Laura's books, but I ended up removing those before the book even went out on submission. And then there are also some thematic similarities in regards to difficult or tumultuous parent-child relationships, familial expectations, and the female protagonists finding strength in their own autonomy. So I would say if Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet were a branch on any ancestral tree, it would probably be that one. I love that. And it also makes me think of what you were talking about a little earlier about a Latinx canon and how Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet fits in there. So I'm going to jump into the next question. Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet is written in dual perspective. How did you navigate writing Penn and Xander so that their voices each remain distinct and yet still weave together seamlessly to create such an unputdownable read? Unputdownable is something one of my old bosses said, and I'd never heard that word before, but I latched onto it and now I use it all the time for all the books that I like read through without wanting to put down. Well, thank you. That's such a high compliment. <laughs> um, so I, I try to focus on the lens through which each character sees the world. And those worldviews are usually shaped by some kind of, I mean, let's be honest, they're usually shaped by some kind of trauma the characters experience or insecurities they have. Penn sees the world as very dog-eat-dog and as a place where having a tough exterior and avoiding vulnerability is how you survive. And this affects everything from what she notices about her environment to how she reacts to the things that she sees to the kind of self-talk that's going on inside her head. Xander, on the other hand, sees the world as a place where everyone is connected to something except him. And he notices those connections instantly. It's something that fascinates him about the employees at the restaurant, that they just have this tight bond that seems sort of magical. And he is really observant of Penn's relationship with her father because he longs for that more than anything. He even notices the connection between Penn's food and the resilience of the people in their neighborhood. So for me, crafting two distinct voices for these two protagonists was really just about figuring out how they see the world and then filtering all of their thoughts and actions through that lens. What immediately struck me about Penn wasn't just how she sees the world, but also how aware she is of how the world sees her and how she like very intentionally and very purposefully puts armor on and like sets her face and uh, sets her tone and sets like the way she like moves around in the world so that people will have the reaction to her that she wants and not see everything that's happening under the surface that makes her feel like she's not in control of how she feels and of her life. That I really like the way you did that and I thought it was so well done and so on point and it just I, it immediately grabbed me when I started reading the story. Thank you. Yeah, control is everything to her because I think it reduces risk of being hurt. And I really don't know a lot of 
you know, by POC people in the world who don't have that same armor at the ready at all times. Toni Morrison often spoke about writing without the white Eurocentric gaze. Do you think about audience when writing? We, of course, think everyone should read this book, we at LBYR, but is there someone you wrote this book for, someone you were speaking to while you were writing it? I think you spoke about this a little bit before. Yeah, so first, I agree. I think there's room in this story for any reader from any cultural background to slip into the shoes of these two characters because ultimately it's a story about family and specifically about redefining those parent-child relationships, which is something we all experience and usually multiple times over the course of our lives. We redefine those relationships as teenagers and sometimes again when we go off to college. It changes again when we become adults and continues to evolve as we age. So I think the core of the book is extremely relatable. But as I mentioned earlier, when I'm sitting down to work, whether I'm drafting or revising a story, I'm not thinking about those angles that make the story marketable to a large audience. I've heard many interviews by, by POC authors about how when they first started writing, they only wrote white protagonists because those were the stories they were most exposed to and subconsciously white main characters just seemed to be the default. But I have always written brown Latinx protagonists. I'm not sure what gave me the audacity or what it was exactly that made me feel entitled to that choice. I'm not sure that it even felt like a choice at the time. I've just always written from a very personal place and it's possible that because all of my protagonists are in some ways a version of myself that centering someone who looked like me or looked like someone in my family just came very naturally. So for a long time I made these choices instinctively and it wasn't until I became a teacher that I really started to think about audience in a much more concrete way. I was an ESL teacher and most of my students were from Central and South America and it really wasn't long before I was picturing their faces and their reactions to what I was writing as I was writing. I started to think about what they might like to see on the page or what cultural Easter eggs I could leave for them or what kind of representation would make them feel most proud and empowered. So I have characters named after students. I reference songs they loved. I give some of my characters verbal tics or catchphrases that belong to them. And same thing with family members. So if there's something about them that I want to honor and preserve, I'll put it in a book. And all of that, of course, got me thinking more intensely about what I was reading at their age and what I would have loved to see, um, like we've been discussing. So now I just, I really try my best to honor not just the teenager that I was then, but also the Chicane, Mexican, and Latinx teenagers reading books now, because that is ultimately who I write for and who I will always write for. As I mentioned earlier, all are welcome to enjoy the stories that I create for them, but they are my number one priority, and everything I create is to honor and celebrate them, full stop. When you're writing about the, the Latinx community, do you think oh, I need to explain this for someone who isn't a part of this community. And by someone, I mean very specifically, like, 
I mean the white gaze. That's what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. do you do you feel a pressure to explain something to make sure that nothing is misunderstood or misrepresented? I would say when I was a younger writer and I was trading a lot of work with critique partners online, pretty much 100% of those critique partners were white. And this is kind of like between 2012 and 2015, I didn't know a lot of other Latinx writers. And so I didn't have the opportunity to have my work critiqued by them. I used to get feedback that was critical of some of the cultural aspects of the work. For example, I remember more than one critique partner saying that there was too much Spanish in the book and they didn't like that I wasn't offering a direct translation right after, you know, the Spanish, which I think is the way they used to do it. There used to always be, you know, something in italics that kind of clarified what was being said. But now I don't feel that pressure as much in that regard. I don't feel the need to explain the language that's used. You know, some of the Spanish that's interspersed in the book, you can figure out what it means using context clues, which anyone who is an English language learner is used to doing all the time when they're interacting with English texts. So I think that's something that English-speaking, native English-speaking readers should become comfortable with as well. But then there's also also some Spanish in the book that is, you know, idioms, things that don't make sense if you don't have the cultural context, if you've never heard that used in the appropriate context. And, you know, people can use Google to look those things up. Um, There's resources online. So those parts of the book... I don't feel the need to justify anymore. However, I am in the process of revising a new book, and I have a lot of trepidation about finding a good balance between creating a realistic portrayal of particular characters in the book while also not catering to harmful stereotypes. I want to be able to show the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful about my community, but I do not want to give ammunition to white readers who already have some implicit bias or already have some racism towards my community. So that has been really difficult and something that I'm actively struggling with right now because the last thing I want to do is put out something that could end up being harmful when that's not my intention, you know? So, so I'm trying to figure out how I can continue writing about the community in a really honest and authentic way and portraying the, the great diversity of, of people and experience and backgrounds within the Chicana community and Mexican community and having people who are whole people, who are flawed people, on the page without being afraid that that's going to be used against the community in some way. So in that case, unfortunately, you know, that the idea of white readers reading the book, that's the point at which it enters my mind. And yeah, I struggle with it. (laughs) I just wanted to say 
thank you for for taking it on and giving such a such a great and nuanced and like thoughtful answer because I know you know it's not it's not an easy topic I'm not asking you you know what's your favorite romance book which I will ask you by the way um (laughs) but yeah so thank you for for actually like working through it with me no it's like I while I'm speaking about it I have I have an ache in my throat like it is literally something that keeps me up at night when I'm you know anticipating you know when this manuscript is going to be due and when I'm no longer going to have the opportunity to tweak it and make changes it terrifies me it terrifies me that you know my intention is to put out something that is honest and nuanced and shows the complexities of us as human beings and that that could be weaponized it just makes me want to cry (laughs) but I think part of it also goes back to what we've been talking about um in terms of canon and in terms of community is that like your books will be in conversation with other latinx books so it's not your books won't stand on their own you know what I mean um Uh they'll have they'll be having a conversation with other latinx books and other latinx authors and also with latinx readers so it's just it's like you're entering the space where i don't want to say the white gaze won't be a problem but like like that's like the white gaze is the white gaze's problem when you enter that space does that make sense yes and and i'm hopeful that my intended audience that you know Chicane and Mexican teenagers who read the book and who possibly have, you know, a wider breadth of knowledge of the Latinx literary canon as it exists today will be able to understand the nuance. It's just people who don't belong to the community, don't spend a lot of time with the community. Are they going to see that nuance? How are they going to interpret the work? when maybe they haven't read very many books by Latinx authors about Latinx characters. You know, if this is one of the only books that they've read about, you know, Chicanes living in Central Texas, is this one story going to hold the weight of all of that in their mind? Is it going to be representative in their mind of what the community is like at large? And I can't control that. Like, you're right in saying... You know, it's it's going to be in conversations with other works. We hope that people who are reading this book are also seeking out other books by Latinx authors with Latinx characters. But I can't control that. And so all I can do is is write for my community and hope that, that they enjoy it and that the other people who find the book also enjoy it and find something worthwhile and meaningful about it. And I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to just focus on that, but I think it's going to take some practice. Well, you said before that, like, I feel, I want to phrase it as like, you've grown like your writer muscles. So now there are things that you just don't, you don't feel the need to justify. So I feel like it'll happen. It's happening. Um, Yeah, that's true. Thank you for reminding me that I said that. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to jump to a less tough, we call them tough topics. in the SNL SNL world. So I'm going to jump to a question that isn't a tough topic. So romance is my favorite genre during 2020, which I don't feel like is over. Like I thought, you know, (laughs) 
January <laughs> yeah. 1st would come and then everything would change and, you know, I'd feel different. I'd be like walking in the streets. That's not what happened. Everything is very, very the same to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I stopped reading romance for a really long time. Like romance is one of the first, it, 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 it's the genre I started reading when I started reading books that weren't for kids. But then I stopped reading romance because, you know, I like went to college and I was like, I only read like, you know, really great literature now. I don't really, I don't read romance anymore. But then 2020 hit and I started reading romance again. And it was like a revelation because the stories were so good and the stories weren't just about romance. They were about so many other things and just the way the genre is able to encapsulate so many different uh, themes and topics while giving you a happy ending, I think is just amazing. I mean, I don't think there are a lot of other genres for like adult books that are able to do that. But back to the question, romance is my favorite genre. I often feel like it gets a bad name, but I think it's a genre that's so versatile and so fecund. Your novel is a moving romance, but it also addresses issues of mental health, finding and being part of a family and community, immigration and citizenship, and more. What do you love about romance, but also how do you think romance allows space to explore complex and deeply personal issues like identity? So my partner and I have been together for almost 14 years, and we had actually just started dating shortly before my father got sick. And so, you know, even though we were both really young at the time, he was really the person who took care of me during that time because my mom was the caregiver for my father, who an only child. So my relationship with him really got me through that experience. And I think that's what healthy, loving relationships do. They are a safe harbor to wait out life's terrible storms. So first and foremost, I write romance because the romantic relationship I was in as a teenager was profoundly important to me and still is. But I also just want my teen readers to know that those kinds of relationships exist and to know what they look like and what they don't look like. Of course, just being a fan of the genre influences my work as well, but I do feel like I take a unique approach in that my couples don't typically follow that formula of falling in love, breaking up, and then getting back together. First, I just think that's so stressful. <laughs> and second, it goes back to my own experience of, you know, finding comfort and solace in my own relationship and just wanting to show that on the page. I want my protagonists to have their own individual story threads and then their own, you know, emotional journeys to go on and for the romantic relationship to be a source of comfort and strength that aids them on that journey. And that's how I make room for the exploration of all of these other things. Because instead of the relationship being a source of conflict in the story, it's a positive force. It's a means of self-discovery, and for Penn and Xander specifically, a way to see themselves in a different light. Xander shows Penn that she doesn't need her father's restaurant to feed and heal her community, or to feed and heal herself. And Penn shows Xander that families are something you make just as much as they're something you're born into, and that those bonds are just as worth fighting for. 
and they're able to illuminate these things for each other because they are different and they don't see the world through the same lens. And to me, that's the power of romance and the power of authentic relationships in general. The best ones will always help us learn and grow and get closer to the person we're supposed to be. You just said that Xander helps Penn realize that she can feed herself. So you're going to get a lot more questions about food with this book. But what I want to ask about it is how food works as sustenance in the book, not just on a literal level, like people need to eat, like struggles needs to eat, but like how it works to sustain Penn and how it sustained her family, not just on a literal level, like I just said, and not just financially in that they had the, like, that's their job, but like food being something essential beyond just something that you eat to live. When Xander is first walking up to the restaurant before he starts his first day of work, he's kind of going through the mythology of Nacho's Tacos and talking about the reputation that it has within the neighborhood and how there are certain dishes on the menu that can help with certain ailments, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual. And I think food is ultimately a symbol for our cultural roots through which we derive so much strength. So especially for those of us who are Chicane, you know, we exist on the peripheries of our own culture. We weren't born in our ancestral homes. And so food is how we stay connected to that source, to that life source and source of strength. And so for me, it's just, it's a metaphor for staying connected to your roots and all the strength and power that you can derive from that. And, you know, Penn, Penn feels very strongly that she belongs in her father's kitchen and that that's where she's supposed to be creating and thriving and cooking this food that means so much to so many people. But you remove her from that place, just like you remove Chicanes from Mexico, and you don't separate us from our power, right? We can be removed from that place and still be able to tap into those things that make us who we are and that make us so resilient and strong. So Penn and her father have a fraught relationship, but it's also really deeply loving. One of the things that stuck in my mind while I was reading the book, or that jumped out at me while I was reading the book, is when I think it's early on in the book, I think it's when Penn is having... She's in her room, and I think she's having... Maybe she's having a panic attack? And it's like the first time that her family is um, seeing this happen to her. And her father like sits on the bed next to her and tells her, you have to be strong. And that, I didn't know how to feel about that. On one hand, I was like, yes, Penn, you have to be strong. But on the, on the other hand, I was like, but she's just a kid, you know? But back to the question, Penn and her father have a fraught but deeply loving relationship. And it's portrayed with such nuance and potency. How did you approach writing them? Well, first, just to address the scene that you brought up, it was really important to me to be honest about the fact that there is a huge 
stigma around mental health issues in the Latinx community. I know in my family, you know, now that I'm almost 30 years old and I have some more perspective, I can see that my mental health issues are biological and generational, and yet they were never discussed. Even though each person in my family has had very, you know, visible struggles, like they weren't something that they could hide, we shouldn't talk about it. And so Penn's father's reaction, I think, is coming from that same place, just not knowing how to communicate about those types of things, and just knowing in that moment, watching his daughter struggle, that he's scared for her because he doesn't know how to help her. Uh, which was a little bit different than, you know, the relationship that I had by, with my own father. But their relationship is very much inspired by some feelings and experiences that I had growing up. So my father and I were very similar, just like Penn and her father are very similar. And when I was a teenager, this is something that caused us to butt heads often. And when he was sick, I had so much guilt about that part of our relationship. I thought about every fight we'd had and every time I'd run my mouth and I was just so angry with myself. And then when he passed away, that guilt followed me for years. It wasn't until I entered the classroom and was around teenagers every single day, teenagers who were the age that I was when my relationship with my parents was the most fraught that I finally started to forgive myself and find some healing because I realized that I wasn't a terrible person and that all of the ways that I was testing boundaries at that age was actually perfectly normal. So that was really profound for me to get to that point. And it gave me the perspective I needed to portray Penn and her father's relationship in a very thoughtful and nuanced way. I wanted to show their similarities and how that causes them to butt heads. I wanted to show Penn longing for her father the way I longed for mine. I wanted to create this tension and this emotional barrier between them that I had also experienced. But even in the midst of Penn's anger with her father, I didn't want her admiration of him to ever waver. I wanted to show their love for one another as this constant, unbreakable thing, because that's the kind of reassurance that I needed at that age. I needed to know that even when I was making mistakes or saying things I didn't mean, that none of that was erasing the bond and the love that was there. Not that I didn't think my parents loved me, but I just felt so unworthy of it at the time because of the way I was acting and how angry I was. And a lot of that was just me already deep in grief before he had even passed away. And Penn grapples with the same thing. She knows lying to her parents is wrong, and after that lie is exposed, she can't help but interpret her parents' actions as this really painful emotional abandonment, which in her mind, she thinks she might actually deserve. But I think unconditional love is really just the act of forgiving someone over and over and over again. It's about looking past that person's flaws and seeing what's in their heart even if they can't express it the way you want them to. And both Penn and her father are deeply flawed. He doesn't communicate with her the way that he should, and she holds back and keeps secrets too. But in reality, there's nothing either one of them could do that would change the immense love they have for one another. And it was just so meaningful 
to me to portray a father-daughter relationship like that. Thank you for that. What would you like readers to take away from the novel? So whether they share my identity or not, whether they share the identity of either of the protagonists or not, I just really hope that when people read this story, they will see our community as something really beautiful and having a lot of value. I want them to see that we are resilient and creative and powerful and loving and proud. I want them to see the ways that we take care of each other and how we fight for each other and to see and know that we will keep fighting together, whether those battles are internal and require us to break down stigmas and talk about our heartbreak and trauma, or those battles are coming from the outside world and require us to, you know, raise our voices and lock arms and march. I want people to see that we deserve to take up space and we deserve to follow our dreams. And for me, this book being out in the world is one of mine. And so I can't wait to share it with people and for them to connect with these characters the way that I have. Could you tell me a little bit about the cover? How you guys came to the cover for Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet because it is such a great cover. I'm in marketing and covers are like my thing. Like I love a good cover. I love a good cover. I love a great story, but I love a good cover. So could you tell me a little bit about how you guys came to the brilliant cover for Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet? I don't remember having a lot of explicit input not because they didn't ask but you know I know when Sam my editor came to me and asked if I had any particular scenes that I wanted to see rendered on the cover I couldn't really think of any like I couldn't pinpoint a specific moment in the book that that deserved to be you know highlighted that way above all the others it was just really important to me that we see the characters And so we, you know, we both kind of put together some lists of illustrators that we were interested in, and I got to look through their work on Instagram, and ultimately, you know, we decided to go with Poppy Magda, whose work is so stunning. It's very hyper-realistic. The thing she does with layering and colors is just so unique, and it was also really important to me that a person of color work work on the cover, whether they're Latinx or not, and especially because, you know, when we had gone through some initial lists and when I was kind of evaluating people's work online, I I could notice through what they chose to share and highlight on their personal accounts what they believe to be beautiful and what their, you know, beauty ideals were, and so there were some that we took off the list because they had a very Eurocentric measure of beauty and for me it was really important that my characters look natural that they be brown like I wanted those aspects of their identities to be visible and so I am really happy that it's a beautiful close-up of their faces and you know we see their beautiful brown skin and we see their thick eyebrows and (laughs) I just I love the details that were added, and I'm really happy with how it came out. I love that cover so much, and just the color there is so deep. 
like this is a gorgeous cover and I hope bookstores put it like facing out because people will just stop in front of it and stare at it yeah I love seeing people take the pictures of like with the arcs of half their face next to half of one of their characters faces where they like splice them together Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet hits shelves this April, and at the time of this recording, it's only just February. But I still want to ask, could you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from you next? So I mentioned Like Water for Chocolate earlier, which is in the genre of magical realism, and which I, I didn't get to really explore in Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, though I do still feel like it's influenced by the book and, and certain elements of the genre. With my next book, though, there will be magical realism. It's a modern take and actually still takes place in the same universe and, in fact, the same neighborhood as Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, so you're not pulled out of our reality too much, but it's a tool for me to explore grief, which is the focus of the story. It's another dual point-of-view romance and actually follows one of the secondary characters from Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, and it's all about music and healing and community and, and courage. And it's just another deeply personal story that I can't wait to share more about very soon. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. Lakin, thanks again for joining us, for giving us such thoughtful answers to these questions and for writing this novel. I really can't wait for everyone to get their hands on it. It's such a good read. I promise you, when you pick up this book, because you will, because you're listening to our podcast, and you open the book and you turn to the first page, you're going to read that first line, and you're just going to keep on reading and keep on reading and keep on reading until the very last page, because that's how I read it. So, Or until you get hungry and you need a snack. Oh, Yes. <laughs> You, you'll have to have snacks with you because there's a lot of really great descriptions of food in the book. So, Lakin, again, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. This was so much fun. Listeners, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet hits shelves on April 6th. Make sure to pick it up. You can find Lakin on Twitter at at Kemp, and you can head on over to LakinZayaKemp.com for recipes and more. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.